Oliver Sacks, the uh, neuroscientist and author, tells the story in one of his books of a man who comes to him because he keeps falling over. What is obvious to Oliver Sacks, but what is not obvious to the man himself, uh, was that the man was leaning over badly rather than standing up straight. It turned out that this man had suffered a kind of brain injury and he'd lost the uh, his sense of balance and lost the ability to recognize that he was standing up straight or leaning over. Uh, and in the end, the way that he solved the problem, there was no sort of medical solution that they could find to the problem. The way that they solved the problem was by this man attaching a spirit level to the front of his glasses so that he could see whether or not he was standing upright or leaning over to the side. Uh, the spirit level would help him to align himself to, uh, to, be, to be able to discern what he couldn't discern himself. This man had lost perspective and so he kept falling over, but the right perspective through that spirit level attached to his glasses, the right perspective enabled him to move through life without falling over. And really, it's very much the same with us in our understanding of the world. For many of us, it turns out that we're actually off balance, but we don't know it. And so we keep stumbling in life. And because we're off balance, we don't know how to live in this world in which we find ourselves. But in Ecclesiastes, God wants to put a level in front of our eyes so that we can see how badly we're leaning and so that we can stand upright. God is helping us to see the world as it really is. That's a particularly helpful thing, I think, for us to do at this time of year because at this time of year in January, we're often thinking and planning for the year ahead and we're thinking about what we're going to do and what our life is going to look like through the year ahead. And what better way for us to gain perspective and to plan, to think about how to plan for the year ahead than by reorienting ourselves in this world according to God's perspective. What better way to help us plan for the year ahead by getting the right perspective on who we are, who God is, and how we fit into this world. And so that's really what we're going to be doing today and through January as we work through the beginning of this book of Ecclesiastes. Well, as we try to get our head around the book of Ecclesiastes, it's helpful to know that there are two voices in this book. Uh, the first voice is the narrator who introduces the main speaker and who then concludes the book at the end in chapter 12. And here in verse 1, the narrator introduces that main speaker. The narrator identifies the main speaker as the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Traditionally, the teacher uh, has been taken to be Solomon, King Solomon. It could be that uh, that who is the main speaker in Ecclesiastes. It could be Solomon. We know that Solomon was certainly very wise, but it could also be another one of the descendants of David, who was king after Solomon. One person has even suggested Zerubbabel. 
At the end of the day though, we don't really know who wrote it, but then it's probably significant that the narrator, whoever he is, doesn't tell us exactly who the writer is. That suggests that perhaps ambiguity uh, may be part of his intent. Well, more important than who wrote this book is, of course, what the book says. As, we've, uh, as we see at the beginning of Ecclesiastes, uh, as you would have read just before, it begins with these very depressing words. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Uh, if you're not familiar with the Bible, and even if you are familiar with the Bible, that statement in Ecclesiastes in verse uh, 2 might seem very, very strange and really quite concerning. Uh, what does it mean? Is the world really meaningless? Is my existence, is your existence meaningless? Are our relationships meaningless? Uh, is the work that we do meaningless? How can a world, too, that God made be meaningless? Uh, when studying Ecclesiastes, people, ironically perhaps, often spend a very large amount of time trying to define exactly what meaningless means. Uh, does it mean something like breath or vapor or transitory or indecipherable? That is, you know, we can't work out what's going on. Uh, does it mean meaningless? And so on. But one of the reasons I think that it's so hard for people to define the term meaningless in Ecclesiastes is because what the teacher means by it uh, can't be narrowed down to just one idea. Over the whole rest of the book, the teacher will be explaining and describing the ways in which life is meaningless. In a way, it means all of those things that we mentioned before. Life is fleeting. Life comes and goes. Life is indecipherable. We can't make head or tail of it. We can't understand why one thing happens and not another. We'll explore some of those ideas in the weeks ahead. But here in this first chapter, the teacher has another factor in mind, uh, another way, if you like, in which life is meaningless. And that is that life is endless, it's monotonous, and it's repetitious. Life just goes on and on, but doesn't seem to go anywhere in particular. So he says in verse 3, what do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Uh, generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. What's the point of all the stuff that we do. We just work and work and nothing much seems to change as a result of it. I've heard, I don't know if it's actually true, but I think it is, that the harbour bridge is being painted, repainted endlessly. They start at one end and they slowly make their way to the other end, only to have to start again all over again once they finish. Imagine if your job was to paint the harbour bridge. What kind of sense of satisfaction do you think you would feel endlessly doing the same thing over and over again, month after month, year after year? And yet the writer of Ecclesiastes says, actually, all of our lives are like that in some way or another. Every day we do pretty much the same thing. We wake up, we get out of bed, we have a shower, we eat breakfast, we go to school, we go to work, we have lunch, we come home again, we eat dinner, we watch TV or read a book, and we go to bed. 
I don't know if you uh, spend much time mowing the lawn. I don't know if it's your job in the family to go out and to mow the lawn. I mowed my lawn last Friday and I swear by the afternoon it looked like it needed to be mowed again. Uh, or think about something like cleaning. Cleaning would have to be one of the most ultimate fruitless exercises. Uh, you finish cleaning only have to, to have to start all over again. Uh, it's, it's out of control. Or think about something like cooking. You spend an hour slaving away, making a meal, only to have eaten the meal in five minutes, and then you have to begin the process all over again the next day. But it's not just those little chores which are repetitive and endlessly repetitive. Uh, the bulk of our life can really be like that. Uh, one day school, one school day rolls over to another school day. You finish one piece of homework only to begin another one. Uh, you might be a builder. You begin a house, you finish a house, then you start another house. Uh, or maybe you're a teacher. Uh, you've just finished one year at school and you'll begin again next year doing the same thing all over again, except with a new bunch of children. Uh, if you work in a government department, what you'll probably find is that every two years you get a new manager who restructures the department. Nothing ever actually changes. You just keep oscillating back and forth between two or three different structures, but you do it quickly enough so that you can never make uh, any of them actually work. At the end of the day, everything just seems to be kind of on an endless repeat. I don't know if you've seen that picture of the hamster wheel desk. It's kind of the next step up from the standing desk. Well, the hamster wheel desk, I think, is a kind of metaphor for the working life, or really just a metaphor for life in general. Uh, life is like being stuck on an enormous hamster wheel, uh, spinning our uh, legs, uh, using our, our energy, but not really going anywhere. And you might think, okay, maybe that's what uh, my life is like. Maybe that's, you know, what your life is like. Uh, but, but, you know, maybe that's just us. Maybe it's different for other people. Uh, but Ecclesiastes says that that kind of endless repetition is not just one or two people's experience. It's all our experience. And in fact, it seems to be baked into the very fabric of the world. Look at verse 5. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. The whole universe is caught up in this repetition. It's not just my life and your life, it's the whole universe. Uh, it's an inescapable part of the fabric of this world. And that has other implications too. Uh, although everything keeps going on and on, no matter how long it goes on, we never seem to be able to find satisfaction, the writer says. So in verse eight, it says, all things are wearisome more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. I wonder if you've ever gone out to dinner and said at the end of the night, you know what, after this dinner, I don't think we ever need to eat again. Uh, or have you anyone ever known anyone to come back from uh, a, a big holiday, an overseas holiday maybe, and say, you know what, I think I've done it all now. Uh, I, I never need to go on holiday ever again. 
Or maybe you've had that experience where you've saved up to buy something. It might be a new bike or a new computer or a new car or something. And you save and you save and you save. And all you can think about is getting your hands on that new bike or that new computer. Well, finally, the day comes, you get it, you get your bike home. But instead of delight, you actually just feel kind of empty. Uh, you're excited but the bike doesn't seem to have filled the hole that you were kind of hoping that it would. I remember getting Lego for Christmas as a child or as a, uh, as a birthday present. It would be so exciting, you know, you, you'd get it, you couldn't wait to open it and just uh, start building as soon as you could. But then, not only, uh, shortly after having begun, you'd finish. But rather than that finishing bringing a sense of delight and satisfaction, it actually often seemed to bring a kind of emptiness. Because you'd waited all this time for this present, you waited all this time to be able to build it, and finally the fun bit was over, that is building it. The writer of Ecclesiastes says that nothing ever seems to really be able to completely satisfy us. We keep hunting, but we always feel kind of empty. We get up every day in the hope that by the end of the day, that yawning chasm of desire within us will be filled, but it isn't. The sun rises and the sun sets. So this life is endlessly repetitive. It seems to be unable to satisfy us. So too Ecclesiastes tells us that nothing is ever really new either. Verse 9 says, what has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new. It was already here long ago. It was here before our time. Uh, sure, you, the, you might think, well, what about something like the iPhone or mobile phones? Aren't they new? They, they didn't have iPhones in ancient Rome. The point that Ecclesiastes is making is not that new things never happen. Rather, the point is that the basic pattern of life remains unchanged by those things. There is no new thing that can break that fundamental monotony of life, of endlessly repeating the same thing over and over again. Every product that you buy tries to sell you the idea that if you, uh, or rather every advertisement that you watch rather, every advertisement that you watch tries to sell you the idea that if you had that product, then life would be amazing. Uh, you would break out of the monotony of life. If only you had the Dyson robot vacuum cleaner, imagine how good your life would be. You'd never have to clean again. Uh, or imagine if you had a Thermomix. Uh, you'd never have to buy baby food ever again. Uh, or imagine if you had that new job. Your life would finally be endlessly satisfying. We so often think that newness and novelty are the solution to our frustration and boredom, but no matter how many times we try, uh, we buy something new or do something in the hope of breaking the cycle, it doesn't work. We can't break the cycle. There's nothing really new that can break us out of this endless monotony. You might know that saying that uh, the definition of madness is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. We try it again and again. We try to break out of the cycle, but it doesn't work. 
there is something endlessly repetitive built into the world that we can't escape. There's nothing new that will break the spell. Think, for example, about last year. Uh, COVID turned the whole world upside down. It turned all of our lives upside down. But how much did it actually change your life, really, uh, from day to day? You still got up every morning. You still ate breakfast. You still went to school uh, or did your schoolwork from home uh, or did your job. You ate lunch. You got tired. You went to bed. Sure, it was different. Maybe you weren't at school when you normally would have been at school. But the basic mechanics of life were actually pretty much the same. The writer says, the writer of Ecclesiastes says, not only is life endlessly repetitive, but there's nothing really new that can break that monotony of life. Well, finally, the writer says that uh, no matter what we do or how many times we do it, in the end, whatever we do, it doesn't really last anyway. It all disappears and it all gets forgotten. Look at verse 11. No one remembers the former generations and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. Uh, and it's true, isn't it? What the Bible says there is true. We often go searching for meaning in terms of our legacy or how people will remember us. But the writer of, of Ecclesiastes says that doesn't really work. Uh, who was the second prime minister of Australia? Uh, who was the third or the fourth? And not only who were they, but what did they achieve? And not only what did they achieve, but what were they like as people? What was it like to be around them? You see, if even those, if you like, famous people, significant people, aren't remembered, then who of the rest of us will be? Uh, in fact, we often forget people even if we want to remember them. Uh, I know people who've lost loved ones, uh, and they often reflect something along the lines uh, that they feel guilty because they don't think about the person who has died more often than they do. They, they feel that they owe it to the person who has died to remember them and to mourn them more than they really do. But the reality is that life goes on. Life gets busy. The sun rises, the sun sets, and it hurries back to where it rises again. Life is endlessly repetitive, and despite all the repetition, uh, and despite all of that, it doesn't bring us satisfaction, it doesn't change, and whatever we do just seems to disappear. Well, that's a pretty depressing picture, isn't it? That the Bible paints of life. It seems quite depressing, actually. Uh, and yet, if we're honest, it probably resonates a bit with our experience of life as well. What do we do with all of that? Well, obviously, in the weeks ahead, we're going to dig more into what Ecclesiastes has to say about the human predicament. But for today, I want to zoom out a little and think with you about the big story of the Bible just for a minute and to show how Ecclesiastes fits within that big story. Because really to understand Ecclesiastes, we need to understand that big story of the Bible. The big story of the Bible is that God has made a good world, but that world has been plunged into frustration and decay because of our rebellion against him. Paul says in Romans 8 that the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of him who subjected it, 
in the hope that creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. The world in which we live is subject to frustration. It groans. So it's no wonder then that we would groan too. God's plan, as Paul says, is ultimately to restore creation and to save a people for himself and to restore those people. And God has given proof that he will do that by raising Jesus from the dead. But until the day comes when Jesus returns and God gathers his people and restores the world to what it is intended to be, until that day comes, our life here is frustrated. We groan and we have to accept that life is like that and we have to trust God in the face of that. The message of Ecclesiastes is not that when we find God and put our trust in Jesus, then life suddenly isn't monotonous anymore. Because this world is still under the curse of sin, the world will still be full of misery and will still suffer the consequences of human sin and rebellion against God. Because we're alienated from God, we still won't understand the world. Because when rebelling from God and we'll try to control and manipulate the world that we can't control, we'll still be frustrated by the world. The writer of Ecclesiastes says that's what life is like under the sun. Life in the world as we find it. At the heart of coming to terms with the human condition then is accepting that the world is frustrated by our rebellion against God and accepting that and trusting God in spite of that. Although we can't understand the world, we trust God. Although there's misery, we trust God that God trust that God is working all things together for the good of those who love him. Although we can't control the world, we trust that God is controlling the world. And although we don't receive all the joy we long for or hope for in this world, we also trust God that in Jesus, the world here is not all there is. A day is coming when the world will no longer be subject any longer to frustration. So Ecclesiastes teaches us to live in that world of disappointment and frustration, a world marred by sin. But Ecclesiastes is not all doom and gloom. There's a positive side. It not only teaches us to accept the frustrations of life under the sun, it also teaches us to enjoy the good that does come. You see, although the world is subject to frustration, there are still, if you like, echoes of Eden. There are still echoes of the good world that God created. There are still good things in this world to enjoy. And God is still in control of this world, giving his people and giving all humanity according to his perfect will. But we need to accept that those things, those gifts from God, are outside of our control. The world is out of our control, and often we won't be able to dictate when we enjoy this or are frustrated by that. Uh, we won't be able to always make sense of the world. Why did this happen and not that? Instead, Ecclesiastes teaches us to receive those big-hearted and generous gifts of God when they come, rather than when we want them to come. It teaches us joy and patience and trust in the midst of suffering, confusion and frustration. How do we live in this world in which we find ourselves? How do we live in this world of frustration and joy? What do we do about work when it seems to be kind of pointless? What do we do about those endless repetitive chores like cleaning the house or cooking dinner? 
Ecclesiastes helps us to live in the world as we find it, full of joys, created by God, but also limited by the frustrations of sin. Ecclesiastes teaches us how to live in a world loved and cared for by God, woven through with those echoes of Eden, but also subject to decay and sin and death and mystery and frustration, and through Jesus' death and the resurrection on its way to glory. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, thank you that your word meets us where we are. Thank you that it describes the world that we live in and we resonate with that. Lord, we resonate with the description in Ecclesiastes of the world as we find it. Our Lord, it is sometimes monotonous and repetitive. Lord, we, we search for satisfaction and we don't find it. Lord, we look for something new to break the cycle of monotony and it doesn't work. The things that we pour ourselves into, Lord, are forgotten or they break down. Lord, we pray that you teach us to recognize those realities in the world and to accept them. Accept that this world, although you made it good, is subject to frustration and misery because of our rebellion against you. Lord, help us to accept that, but help us to trust you in that. Help us to trust that one day you will make the world new, that you'll gather your people. All those who put their trust in Jesus will be gathered to your throne and you will remake this world perfectly as you intended it to be. You'll clean it up and Lord, it will no longer be frustrating. But Lord, also teach us uh, to wait for that patiently. Teach us to live in the moment, uh, in the world in which we find ourselves amid the frustration. Uh, help, teach us to live amidst that, trusting in you that you have everything under control. And teach us, Lord, as we live, uh, also to accept and to receive the good gifts that you give us. Lord, thank you that although the world is frustrated and marred by our sin, uh, Lord, that there are good things to receive, that even in the monotony of cleaning the house, there are good things to do, even in the monotony of daily work. Uh, Lord, you give us good gifts. Uh, you give us enjoyment in those things. Uh, you give us the opportunity to serve you, to serve those around us. Uh, the opportunity to develop the world that you've created and made. Lord, all those opportunities will still be frustrated in some way or other. But Lord, we pray that as we study Ecclesiastes over the weeks ahead, that you would teach us to live in this world that you've made to receive the joys that you give us, uh, but also to live in the reality and in the hope uh, of a world put right through the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, uh, we pray that for Jesus' sake. Amen.